My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at, at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill, fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, we, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, help us to understand that this is your word to your people. Um, God, convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, that your gospel truth would uh, rain down upon us right now in, this, in these uh, next few moments as we study your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You, you may all be familiar, at least I hope you're familiar with the expression, don't be a Karen. Anybody? Okay, good. That, it's, it's become really popular over the past couple of years. I love the expression. I use it all the time. Um, and if you don't know what it means, uh, let me give you the slang dictionary definition of what a Karen is. A Karen is a pejorative slang term for an obnoxious, angry, entitled, and often racist, middle-aged white woman who uses her privilege to get her way or police other people's behaviors. I'm sorry if your name is Karen, by the way. <laughs> so, this is how it is. I heard the male version of this is Kevin. So, <laughs> that's a nightmare. Anyways, but I think the reason we don't like Karens or we don't like to be called a Karen is because they kind of embody or, or they, are, they are the epitome of judginess. And we don't like it because we don't like the idea of either being judged or judging others unfairly. We don't like that. So we don't want to be associated with that type of attitude. So we want to keep that as far away from us as possible because, of course, I'm not the judgy one. It's all of those other Karens who are judging everybody else. But here in our text... James is directing this sort of idea towards those who are inside the church. He's not, he's not aiming at those outside the church, but he is aiming at the church. So James, is, he's giving a very 
practical test this morning to those who say they love God. And he's saying to them, if they actually do uh, love God, are they actually doing what God says to do or not do? And one of the ways we do this and kind of evaluate this is by looking at what law we live by. And that's how we'll look at the text today. We'll, We'll look at it in three ways. One is the law of man. Second is the law of love. And then third is the law of liberty. So the law of man, you could say, is our sinful condition. The law of love is what changes us. And then the law of liberty is then how we live after we've been changed. Law of man, law of love, law of liberty. So first, the law of of man. Look at verse 1. James writes, My brothers and sisters... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So this verse is the thesis statement of, the t- of today's text. And then the rest of these verses unpacks what James means right here. So before we can jump into every other, every other verse, we have to understand what, what is partiality? What does that even mean? Well, the Greek uh, word literally means receiving the face. Receiving somebody according to their face. Which means to make a judgment about a person simply based on their external uh, appearance only. So you see someone, you see their face, you make a judgment upon them. That's the Greek word that's being used here. And, and, and the Greek word also is, is plural. So it's not just looking at somebody's uh, uh, face, but it's also just this, these wide-ranging uh, sorts of things that we judge people by, that we, can, we have this uh, a, a, a kind of a, a, a deeper application here with this word. Because we're, we, are not, we are not to make decisions about people based on any external factors. There's, there's no justification to it. There is nothing that you can judge somebody on externally. So that includes the way someone dresses. That includes skin color. That includes uh, physical appearance. As some, somebody may come in here a little bit disheveled, you know. They had a rough night or whatever. We don't judge based on that. Well, we don't base uh, our judgment upon anybody because of income status. Or, or, or where they live, or what, what job they have, or don't have. So none of these things should ever factor into the way in which you treat someone. Ever. Now this is obviously, for, for James, this is a concrete example of what James means when he says to be a doer of the word. We, we like concrete. And this is exactly what James is getting at. He says, he says, don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. Okay, James, what does it mean to be a doer? Don't show partiality. Don't judge people based upon the way they look. And this is simply being a doer of the word in this way, not showing partiality, is simply treating others in a way, uh, you could say it this way, treating others in a way that puts you on their level. It puts you on their level. Not treating someone uh, in a way that makes you uh, appear uh, superior or better than them. And this is modeled to us by Christ himself. 
Paul describes, it, describes Jesus' ministry in this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, for you, and then I, there's, a, there's a number of ways Paul could have described Jesus' ministry to us. And, and he uses income status in which to do it. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the ministry of Jesus. And this is the way that James wants you to think and to live. This is your filter. He wants you to look at the glory of Christ Jesus himself as your standard. I like the way, there's lots of, there's lots of different translations of the Bible, but, um, and they, they kind of rework things according to their theology sometimes, but, um, and, and what they think the Greek text might, might be saying instead of this, but I like the way the New Revised Standard translation of the Bible translate this, translates this verse. I don't, I don't think it's the, the correct way, but I think it's, it just helps because they translate it as a question. And I think it's a great question uh, to ask ourselves. And this is, how they, this is how they translate verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? With your acts of favoritism, can you really believe in Jesus, if you're showing favoritism to those people who come through your doors, do you really believe that? Now, this is the, the um, Jesus, the name of Jesus is only explicitly mentioned twice in James. One in uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and then right here. And then you don't hear the name of Jesus the rest of the time in James's letter. But I think it's, it's not an accident that James brings up the name of Christ right here, right now, in chapter 2, verse 1. Because James is saying that you can't hold faith in Christ and at the same time, equally, hold the sin of partiality. You can't do it. Or, or better yet, we should do that with just one hand. You can't hold Christ and the sin of partiality in one hand together. And this is why I think it's important to ask this, this as a question because your answer to that question gets to the heart of the matter. So if you say you believe the gospel, do you actually do what the gospel says to do? Are you a doer of the word or are you merely a hearer? So to ask it another way, how can you hold on to discrimination and racism and also hold on to your faith at the same time. James is saying you can't do that. It's impossible. Because the two are incompatible. They, they, they can never coexist within the believer. So there is never, there is never a time in the history of of the church, in the history of Christianity, where that was ever the right thing. Ever. So I think it's, you could say something along these lines. So, so I think it's okay to, to, to judge someone, say, based on the color of their skin. 
Well, that's not compatible with the gospel. Thinking about what we learned last week, the words we, we live by are not ultimately uh, uh, the rules that our world lays before us or even the rules that we like to create in our own minds to live by, but the rules that we live by as, as the body of Christ, the church, are the, are the very words of God. And God's word says very clearly that all people are created in his image and therefore all people are to be treated according to his standard. Not the way you grew up. Not what any kind of political or any other ideology is trying to, to teach you to treat other people. But you are to, uh, to treat people according to the standards of, of the gospel. Not by the laws of man. So what are these laws? What are the laws of, of men? So the NRV is also helpful here because it, makes verse, um, it, because it makes verse 1 very personal by adding your acts of favoritism. Your acts of favoritism. So, uh, so these, these acts of favoritism are actually your personal laws. In your mind, you have, these, you have these standards and these laws that if people don't obey them or, 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 or meet your particular standard, they will automatically be treated differently. And for some of you, those are so ingrained that you don't even think about it. You don't even have to think about writing people off or discriminating against somebody because it is so ingrained in you. And you just do it. Right when you see what that person looks like. So if, if, if they don't dress a certain way. If they don't uh, work a white collar job. Or if they don't live in a certain part of the city. Uh, or even if they're not the right skin color. Meaning they're not your skin color. Then automatically you treat them differently. And not only, not only will you treat them differently kind of randomly out in public. You know. But you will, you will, James is saying this type of treatment, he's speaking to the church here in his letter. This type of treatment was happening in the church. So James is saying, you won't just do this out in public. You'll actually do that within the place where you worship God. And you've done it. You know you've all done it. You, you gravitate towards those uh, you think are cool, or I know that sounds very high school, but we still do that. To those who you think are cool or nice looking, and you think, man, I want to be friends with that person. I want to I wanna, uh, to hang out with them. But the person who doesn't look like you, or you don't think looks cool, or isn't nice looking, you're just, you just stay away from them as far as possible. And James says, that is not the way of the gospel. That is not biblical Christianity. He gives an example of what this type of partial treatment looks like within the church in verses 2 through 4. Look there with me. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and, you, and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the word assembly here, it might be translated in your, your copy of Scripture uh, as synagogue. And I think we're more familiar with that word synagogue because that was the Jewish place of gathering for worship. So it's much like what we do here every single week. This is kind of like our synagogue. We gather here every week for worship. And so James' example depicts a situation in which two people enter the church. There's a, there's a, a rich man and there's a poor man. And literally in the Greek, the, the rich man is actually called a shiny person. Because the way in which you identified uh, someone who was rich during that time was, was the amount of jewelry that they were wearing. So shiny jewelry. And so immediately when a rich man entered the place of worship, you knew they were rich. So you have this rich man who enters and you have this poor man who entered. And I like to say they, they kind of entered one after the other. And the poor man, the rich man is offered the best seat in the house. The place of honor. If that were here, the best seat in the house would probably be like back there in the corner, um, in the back. Um, and then the poor man gets offered the worst seat in the house, which would probably be like right there, all by himself. And you would just sit him there and then just run off into the back. And nothing against you guys who sit in the back, by the way. It's fine, totally fine. But truly welcoming someone into the household of God isn't just us unlocking the front doors and then letting them come in and just kind of wander in and sit down and then wander out and, and leave. But it's actually, uh, truly welcoming them is actually taking them by the hand, whatever that hand might look like, covered in jewels or covered in dirt, and inviting them to the best seat in the house. And that seat might be right next to you. That may be the best seat in the house. And again, we can't miss this, because if we miss this, we'll end up making something else the gospel. Because ultimately, what this is, what this is boiling down to is the warning that James brought up back in chapter 1, verse 6. And that is for Christians not to have a divided heart in their relationship to God. And here specifically, discrimination within the believer's heart is considered another indication of a wavering and divided attitude toward God. Not just the person who enters who's dressed in shabby clothing or the rich man who's covered in jewels. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to, the, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. So what Jesus is saying there is if you discriminate against anyone of those created in God's image, you do that to Jesus as well. I remember I was... Um, I was in youth ministry for a brief moment, and I was at, at a, youth, a, youth, a middle school youth gathering, and I remember the youth leader had a dartboard set up, and uh, he had paper covered over the dartboard, and, and it was like a competition, and he was, he was having the kids throw darts. Uh, or no, he had the kids, this is what he did, this isn't in my notes, this is, 
But he had the kids write down the person that they disliked in their school. It's even better. And then had them throw darts at the name of that person. And then after a while, after they all had a good, good time laughing and just throwing darts at the person they hated uh, or disliked, uh, he removed the paper and it was a, a picture of Jesus. And I just remember the silence was deafening when the kids were able to see that. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Those, diet, those darts that you're throwing are actually directed at me because you are, you are discriminating against that it, someone who is created in the image of God. So this is why James says that you can't hold faith in our glorious Christ and discriminate at simultane, at simultaneously. You can't do that. Or another way you could say it is you can't, you can't give Jesus glory and man glory at the same time. You can't do it. So how do, we, how do we change? How do you go from showing partiality, uh, showing uh, you know, discrimination? How do you, how do you go from, from, from racism? How do you go from making superficial and shallow judgments about people to not doing that? Because that's where we want to get, right? Well, and it's, it's understanding this, this second law that James highlights in verses 5 through 11, the law of love. Because you, you, won't, make, you won't make this change on your own. You can't do it. There's, there's no, you, have, you don't have the motivation for it on your own. But the gospel gives us that sort of motivation. Because the gospel gives us a new law that is motivated only by love. Look at verses 5 through 7. James says again, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into co to court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So what is James saying here? Why, 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 why am I not to show partiality? Why am I not to, be, to discriminate against people on the, on the basis of what they look like? And it's because God has not been partial toward you. Whether you are a Christian or not, God is not partial towards you. Well, some of you might be asking, well, didn't God show special favor to the people of Israel? Didn't he have a, a special people that he placed his love upon and, and treated them differently than all the other nations? And the answer is yes, a resounding yes. He did do that, but it wasn't because of anything about them that moved him to do so. He didn't look at them and say, man, these people are beautiful. They're so beautiful. They're so nice. They do all the right things. I am going to choose them because they're the best people. I'm going to choose them to be my people. I'm going to take possession of them. That is not how it worked. It wasn't because of anything that, about them that moved him to do so. So here I am. 
showing favoritism to a person because of something about them. This is what we do. There's something about them. So, so this is a rich person. They come into our midst. I have, I have something to gain from them if I treat them well. Maybe, maybe they'll become a member of our church and, and give, so, so I need to, to roll out the red carpet for them so they'll stick around. God doesn't do this. Let me just read uh, what Clarence read for us earlier from Deuteronomy 7. Just a couple, a few of those verses. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Actually, you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the reason God chose Israel and the reason God chose you is because he set his love on you. And he did that first. And this is something to be very thankful for because if it was, if it was not the case, if, if God chose you based on your appearance, a lot of you would be in trouble, including me. If he chose you based on your appearance or your social status or your wealth or your good works, that's something that you would have to keep up in order to remain in his favor. You would have to continue to be beautiful. You would have to continue to do all of these good works. You would have to continue to make the amount of money that you were making when, when God chose you because you were making that, uh, that much money. So thankfully, there is nothing special about you that causes God to love you and to continue to love you. Nothing. That's grace. That's grace. The, the law of man says be beautiful. The law of man says be clean. Do the right thing. Don't ever make a mistake or else you'll be canceled. You'll be ostracized from society. You'll be shamed into oblivion. That's the law of man. Which means the law of love is counter to the law of man. It really makes absolutely no sense to the ways of this world. Think about a high school cafeteria. If you can go back to that nightmare um, in your mind. Sorry, sorry guys, um, that you're living that reality right now. But think about a high school cafeteria. And the part, and my, I went to a high school cafeteria recently when my daughter was at Lakeside, and I was terrified when, when I entered into that place because um, I didn't know where to sit. Anyways, if you think about a high school cafeteria and, and the partiality and the segregation you see taking place there, um, or, or, or maybe you're experiencing right now in real time, but you go in there and you notice right away everyone is separated by age, so you're different grades. Everyone's separated by race, so you have all the white kids sitting together and all the black kids sitting together and all the Asian kids sitting together most of the time. Everybody's separated by popularity status. If you're, not, if you're not at a certain level in, in the school of popularity, you can't sit at certain tables. 
But sadly, that often carries over into adulthood, doesn't it? And sometimes, even more sad, is that 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 often leaks into the local church as well. And so we create these cliques of age and stage, whatever it might be, or, or people who, who, uh, who do the same thing that I do or play the same sport as I do or, they're, or, they're, or they're, you know, they just like me or look like me. But according to the law of love, the church is the one place this sort of thing should never happen. It should never happen amongst the family of God. Because think about this. This is the way the scriptures, the scriptures describe it for us. Because in the kingdom of heaven, there is only one banquet table. It's not like a high school cafeteria where there's multiple tables. It is one, in my mind's eye, I can only picture this one huge table filled with food and drink. And, and, and every tribe, and every tongue, and every nation will be sitting at the one table. Not separated out. And you won't lose any of this when you get to the table either. You're not going to lose your culture. And I think some of us actually believe that we'll all either be angels in heaven, which we won't, or that we'll, t- that we'll all turn white and American in the kingdom for some reason, that it will all speak English. But let me just ready you a little bit, get you ready for the culture shock or culture sh- cultures shock. At the table, different languages will be spoken. I think we'll all understand those languages. I think it'll be a reversal of the Tower of Babel in a lot of ways. Maybe there will be one language, but I think we'll all understand each other. But, but, th- but that means different cultures will be honored at the table. So different music will be played. Different customs Different rituals, different foods will be at the table. People of different races will be at the table. People of, of varying economic statuses will be at the table. So the poorest of the poor on earth, who never sit with the richest of the rich on earth, will be sitting together. We'll be sitting across from each other. We'll be drinking from the same wine glass. So how is that? Is it, is it because we're trying to just trying to just you know gird ourselves up and just try to be the nicest people that we possibly can? No, we won't do that. We won't gather with people different from us just based on our own. So how is it possible? It's the cross that makes it possible. Pastor Rich um, Velodos said this. He says the cross is not just a bridge to get us to God. So sometimes we we like to just think that that's where it ends. Is that, is that salvation, we have, we have salvation, we've been saved by God, um, the cross has gotten us to God. But he goes on and says, uh, it's also a sledgehammer that breaks down the hostile walls that separate us. So it's not just a bridge, but it's also a sledgehammer that breaks down those dividing walls, those, those things that divide us. The cross crushes them. And because God has shown his love towards you through the cross, you are not only able to do this, you have to do this. You don't, have a, you don't have, really have a choice in the matter as a believer. Because we are to give people a taste of this kingdom reality on earth. Look at verse 8. James says, 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so this is taken from the actual Old Testament law here. James is quoting the Old Testament. Um, he's also referring back to Jesus' words, but he's quoting the Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So according to the standard of God's word, I am, I am doing well, and I am only doing well when I love my neighbor as myself, James says. And this is why Jesus classifies only two commandments. Out of all of the, out of all of the law, which there was hundreds of different laws, Jesus boils the law down into two commandments in Matthew 22. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then James says very plainly, to not do this is sin. Look at verses 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not murder, uh, commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So what James is saying here is you can't pick and choose what you want to obey and what you don't want to obey in the Bible. The, the, the scriptures do not give you that option. So herein lies a safeguard, just so you're clear. If you break one law, you have broken the entire law. Not just that one law. You have broken the entirety of it. So, so just like if you were to pop a balloon from the, from the left side of the balloon or the right side of the balloon, it doesn't matter what you choose, the entire balloon will be destroyed. So what this says more seriously is that, that you could obey every law in the Bible from top to bottom perfectly. And, and with the exception of one, you said, you know what, I, wanna, I, need, I need to discriminate against people because this is the way I grew up and my parents didn't like this sort of people and my grandparents and if I were to accept them then that would you know, ruin my relationship with my family. So I'm going to leave this over here, but I'm going to do all these other things right James is saying that even if you do that, you have broken the entirety of the law, even those ones you are fulfilling flawlessly. Why? Because our lives are not governed by the laws of this world, as believers, but the law of love. And to show partiality isn't love. To kick people out of your life because they're different from you is a sin against Jesus. And this shouldn't happen at all. Sadly, it does, but it definitely shouldn't happen within the church. And the problem arises, I think, when we only see church as this kind of insular community where we just, we just we go there on Sunday or we might go to an activity or two during, during the rest of the year, but, but really that's just a place I go to check my boxes and, and to get my fix, and then I'm, I'm good to go with God for however much longer until I come again. That, that's where the problem arises when you, when you treat it as this kind of insular community and not like a family. When you begin to think of church as a family, it really changes the entire dynamic of, of this whole gathering. Because you're gathering with 
brothers and sisters, not just random people. So think of your own family. Everyone under your roof is different. I have five children. They're all different, all different personalities. We all have different likes and dislikes, um, differing tastes. Um, We we spend our time in different ways. Um, We get on each other's nerves, you know, things like that. We we get angry in different ways. There's all sorts of differences in, in just my family and in just your family. You know that. And just because they're different, doesn't mean you're going to treat them poorly. At least I hope you don't. It doesn't mean you're going to treat them poorly or, or, or kick them out of your family, although that might be a temptation at times. I, I, I get it. But it doesn't mean you're going to actually do that. Hopefully what you will do instead is that you'll pursue them even more. That you'll get, that you, that you'll get to know them more deeply because you want to know them because you love them. They're part of your family. Well, the same is true for the church. We don't kick people out because they're different, and we don't make judgments upon them either because they're different. Because the church, the church isn't about gathering all of your best friends together. It's about gathering a diverse community around the glorious Christ. So this is one of the reasons we have our missional communities that meet every single week, Uh, This is one reason why we organize our missional communities uh, according to geography and not age and stage. Is, Is because it gives you an opportunity to be this visible presence of this diverse community. And I recognize that's a very small picture, but... But it gives you this visible presence of this diverse community that God has called called together in your area of the city or in your neighborhood. That people are seeing this diverse community gather together is a testimony to the gospel. So your missional community is a visible witness to the glory of Jesus and the kingdom of God. That's what your missional community is. That's what this church is. And the only way that you can live this way consistently is by recognizing that that you've been changed by this law of love, which is is, uh, Jesus entering into our world, making himself poor so that you can become rich. So recognizing this law of love, but also recognizing that you constantly live under the law of liberty that is found in the gospel. That you live under the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ Every day of your life. So look at our final two verses in verses 12 and 13. James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So by addressing both speaking and acting here, James is is keeping the theme of hearing and doing the word constantly before us in his letter. He'll continue to over and over talk about uh, 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 hearing the word and doing the word. How, y- how your faith is, is manifested through your works. You'll, you're constantly going to hear that. But it's also his way of saying that in all of life, we are to behave as people submitted to God's law. So what does it look like to consistently live under this law of liberty? Well, first... 
understand that James is contrasting here this, the, the law that we find in verses 10 through 11. So he's, he's quoting some of the Ten Commandments there. So he's, he's, he's bringing up this law of man, and he's contrasting it with this law of liberty. So the law in verses 10 through 11 is something that you cannot do. You cannot accomplish it. It serves only to condemn you, to show you that you can't do it, to show you that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So, so if one tries to live by the law, they will also fail and die by the law. Rather, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to live by the law of covenant that Christ has put in place by him fulfilling the law for us, which then gives us freedom or liberty. Now, this isn't freedom to live however you want. It's still a law. It's still something that we live according to, and we, we kind of model our lives according to. But it's a law that we discharge with joy because we stand forgiven and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways this manifests itself in our lives as believers is by showing mercy. Because that is what is counter to partiality is showing mercy. James warns us. He says, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. It's a warning. This might remind you of Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 when he tells the story of the unforgiving or the unmerciful servant. So you have this servant who, who, who is in debt over his head. He will never be able to repay the debt that he is in. And the king shows great mercy to this man and, and, and forgives him of his debt and lets him go free. This man now has freedom. He has liberty um, to use however he wants. He's been given a new life is what has happened. So instead of going out and praising the king and saying, this is what the king has done for me, instead, the first thing he does is he runs across an old uh, friend of his who owes him money, and then he shakes him down and has him thrown into prison until he can repay. Well, obviously, the word gets back to the king, and this is how Jesus concludes his parable. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Remember, he'll never pay. So also, my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So Jesus is saying the same thing will happen to you if you refuse to offer others the same mercy that God the king has shown to you. Because mercy is to be the posture of the Christian. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this is, I mean, he says that very thing in Matthew 5, 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what James is saying here is that, that your ministry of mercy or your lack thereof is actually a test of your faith. Is your faith genuine? James says, if you say yes, then show me your deeds of mercy. 
Show me your deeds of mercy. What does that look like? Tim Keller's thoughts in this passage. He writes, James concludes that a profession of faith unaccompanied by deeds of mercy shows that faith is dead. A profession of faith unaccompanied by deeds of mercy shows that your faith is dead. So with words like those, we need to know how to respond to all all of this. We're not just going to stop there. Because we must respond to this because we have been shown much mercy from God in Christ. And admittedly, I don't have all the answers to that. I don't have all So if you came up to me and said, what do I do then? I would, I would say, I don't know yet. I don't know. So, I, so, I'm, so I'm deferring to Tim Keller. And um, in Tim Keller's excellent book, Ministries of Mercy, um, he poses five invitational questions that you can ask yourself personally, but also... Uh, you're going to have an opportunity to do this in your missional communities this week as well. And I'll move through these quickly. The first question Tim Keller says you can ask is, uh, when you were talking about doing ministries of mercy and moving towards people in, in mercy, the first question he says to ask is, is there a particular human need that moves you? Is there something that you find yourself constantly being drawn towards? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's um, you know, orphan care. Maybe it's, uh, you, have a, you have a great burden for um, just, just from what you see through sex trafficking. Maybe there's something there that you want to get involved in to help stop it. But it's just a specific problem or hurt that you long to help with. So that's the first question you ask. The second question is, what personal, emotional, and spiritual resources do you have to meet that particular need because you need more than desire you need more than excitement to 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 kind of push you on into a ministry like that so you you also have to have to have the ability to do so so take some inventory the third question is and this one is really important i think are there at least two or three others in the congregation who share your burden or to whom you can readily communicate your vision I'm just telling you right now, doing ministry in community is way better than just doing it by yourself. Typically, it will fail. We've, we, Tara and I, uh, a long time ago, moved into a, a poor neighborhood, and there was, we did not get, go by ourselves. We had one or two other families that went in with us, and it was way more effective that way. When we planted this church, we, we pulled in um, six other people and said, we're, we're going to do, do this together. So make sure you're, you're putting that out there. And a couple, you could do that. You could do that by asking around. Say, I'm really interested in, in helping with this ministry that's dealing with sex trafficking. Uh, is anybody else interested in that? You can put it on the Slack page if you wanted to to try to get some, um, some feedback to see if anybody else is, is, is uh, passionate about that. But let me just warn you, because this might happen. You might have people here that are just going to just, just flood Slack this afternoon and Facebook. And I just want to warn you that if your invitation doesn't receive a positive response or or positive support and nobody jumps on your bandwagon with you, I don't want you to ask or say, what's wrong with this church? Or why don't people care about this? Because I care so deeply about it. So don't don't pass judgment upon people, but but rather look at it as as a way that God is guiding you. It It may not be the right time. It may not be the right place. You may not have the right resources yet for that but to wait patiently and to pray 
for that to happen, okay? Fourth, is there really an opening for your ministry? So you, you have to ask whether the ministry you're thinking about is timely and needed. So, so desire and ability and opportunity, all of these things are all factors in God's call in your life, in, in anything. So desire, ability, and opportunity are, are all things that all have to align in order for you to really say, I think God might be calling me to this. So make sure you're paying attention to those, the desire, the ability, and opportunity to be able to say, is this really the right time for this in this particular place? And then fifthly, last, before you begin, have you really counted the cost? Have you really counted the cost of what, of what it actually might cost you personally? And if you have a family, if you're married and have children, what, what will it cost uh, you? What will it cost your spouse? And what will it cost your children? Because it will cost you something to do ministry like this. And as we begin to think more comprehensively about doing acts of mercy and, and ab about ways to, to welcome those who are different than us, uh, we're not doing this to point to ourselves and to say, look at how good we are. We're, we're better than everybody else because we're doing these great things. Now, we are pointing to this greater reality of the kingdom of God that says all are welcome in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have, you have welcomed us with open arms. You have welcomed us in, 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 in ways that, that even make it uncomfortable. Because we, just, we know the depths of, at least at some level, we know the depths of our own sinful heart. But you know even more than that. The gospel says that we are way more sinful than we think. Yet we are way more loved than we can, than we can imagine by you. And so, God, I pray, as, as, as you have shown us mercy, that we would take that mercy and show it to others, that we would be, um, at least in a small way, a picture of the kingdom reality on this earth while you have us here. Help us to be faithful to that. In Jesus' name, amen.